We have, uh, I was just told, actually, just stand up. If you're going to Cowboys Rest to serve this summer, now you stand up. If you're serving at Cowboys Rest, yeah, look at this. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, yeah, nine, nine. And our son, Brendan, isn't here, and he's going too. You guys can have a seat. That's a lot. <laughs> that is, that's exciting. Um, this summer, just kind of give you an idea where we're heading. It's summertime. It's warm. School's out. We were going to play that song, School's Out for the Summer, but I don't think it's appropriate, I guess. Um, but school's out. Enjoy the summer. When you can, come on Sundays. We're, we're doing things a little bit differently through the summer. Just so you know, we're lightening things up a bit because we know numbers are going to be lower and we want to give people a break. And it's, it's okay uh, to take a break sometimes and, and relax a bit. And in this body, um, we, we aren't big. We're a small church and so many of us serve. In fact, really all of us serve in one way or another, whether it's on the weekend or others, we're all involved. And we have a ratio of about two to one adults to kids. We have a lot of kids. And so the reason we are gonna be taking six weeks off of the older kids, the younger kids will still have that. So if you have, you know, little ones, they will, will have something for kids, but the older ones are gonna be with us so that we can give you guys as teachers a break and give teachers a break and worship together. Uh, bring your kids, sit in the front because it's going to be a family service and I'm going to do things interactive for the kids. So if you have kids, sit in front because they'll be able to enjoy it more. Um, but come, we're going to still worship. The summer is one of those times where often we take a break. We take a break from church. We take a break from work. We take a break. But what we do, and that's okay. If there's a Sunday, you're going to stay home and barbecue. Great. No big deal. But don't do it too often. But here's the big thing. Don't take a break from God. You need to meet with God still through the summer. <laughs> you need to make it, your schedule will be different. Put God in your schedule every day. Make it a point to meet with God every day. And then make it a point that's up and make it a point to meet with others. We're not doing outpost groups through the summer. We are doing a barbecue outreach on the 14th. We're doing a camp out in July. We're doing another church in the park in August. So we're doing some things to connect, but continue, get together, have barbecues, invite people over, Continue to connect in and continue to build those relationships with people out. We're not going to be doing as much program stuff through the summer, and that's, that's okay. But let me just encourage you, don't take a break from God because you'll feel it. <laughs> when you take a break from God, the enemy can move in. Temptations will arise, and, and, and sin can creep in. So make it a point. Continue to meet with God. That's all I'm going to say about the summer. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to know you um, we don't have to guess. I was watching a show the other day and, and somebody was talking about, well, all roads lead to heaven basically, or, or heaven is Disneyland and, and uh, everybody just takes a different road to get there. Well, that's not true. Um, and you gave us the book of John because you want to be known. And there is one way to you and that is Jesus Christ, your son, whom you sent, who came and died for us. We thank you that you did it. We thank you that you've made yourself known to us that we can know you. So please open up our hearts and minds to know you better. Jesus, you said it, eternal life is that we know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We want to know you. Be with us today. Be glorified in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to John. We're gonna be in John chapter two. That's page 612. If you're in one of these Bibles, if you need a Bible, no big deal, raise your hand, we'll bring you one. If you have a phone, we're using the ESV version. You can turn to it there. So when I, uh, I was about 22 years old, living in Russia, and 
there was a racquetball court in the embassy. I worked in the U.S. embassy, and there was a racquetball court in there, so I played a lot of racquetball, which was fun. But one day, I, something happened to my knee. My knee just locked up, um, and I couldn't walk on it, and I was on crutches. And I ended up going to the International Medical Center. Um, and I, I hobble in, and I get this French doctor, and he looks at me for probably one minute. You know, sit up on the table, and he, ow, ow, you know, he does all this to your knee. And, and he says, okay, you have a torn meniscus, you need surgery. I said, are you sure? <laughs> you looked at me for like a minute. He said, no, you need surgery. You know, we'll schedule it. I'm like, wait a minute. Don't I need an x-ray or an MRI? No, no, you need surgery. <laughs> so I hobbled out of there, and, and I'm like, ah, French, telling me I need surgery. He looked at me for a minute. So I, I said, no, I'm going to get an x-ray. So I found somebody. Uh, it was a Rus Russian friend who knew a place I could get an x-ray. Um, but it was in a part of town of Moscow I wasn't used to. And he said, yeah, just go and bring $500 cash and they'll give you the x-ray. So I'm on crutches. Yeah. I get on the metro and I go to a station I'm not used to. And I'm going down streets I'm not used to. And I get to this building and there's nobody around. And it looks pretty abandoned. And they go, and the door's open. So I go in. I mean, these halls, it was weird. It was really weird. It was something from, you know, a movie of places you don't want to go um, where they're going to, like, take you and make you into the winter soldier or something. Um, so I'm going down, and finally I get to a, a sign on a door, and it, it's in Russian, and I think it says x-ray. So I open it and go in, and sure enough, there's an x-ray machine in this room, and there's a guy. And so I give him the $500 cash, and he gives me the x-ray, and prints it out right there, which makes no sense because here you have to wait weeks to get them back often. But he prints it out and gives it to me and I take it with me and I, I hobble back and I lived. So I got through that and I get back to the French doctor and I come in and I give him the x-ray and he kind of rolls his eyes, puts it up on his thing and circles the tear, says, all right, let's schedule the surgery. I'm like, really? You're not even going to examine it more? Uh, my, my point is, he was right. He was the expert I'm not. <laughs> I'm no doctor. And what I did was I didn't, I made two mistakes. I didn't like his prognosis. Um, and so I sought clarification elsewhere. And I didn't really want to do what he said. I didn't really want surgery. Um, and so I placed myself even in harm's way and I was out another 500 bucks by not doing what he said. I tell that story to make the point, how often do we do that with God? How often do we hear from God and go, eh, I'm not crazy about that second opinion? Um, or how often do we hear from God or we, we have something going on in life, we have a, an issue, a problem, and we bring it to him, but then we want to tell him what to do about it. We want to tell him how to fix our problems. And this happens all the time when I'm, when I'm counseling with people or talking to people or when I was a youth pastor. And everybody wants to tell God what they need and how to fix it. And they're not content unless God does it their way. Um, can you relate? Maybe, do you have anything going on right now where you want to tell God how to do it and instead you need to just let God handle it? Turn to John because I believe we're going to get some answers to that question while we look at and get to know Jesus and his first miracle. So we're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'll read it, and then we'll go through it. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, 
What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So let's get a picture um, of where we are. Last week we saw that Jesus was in the area right, I'm just going to come over here, Jerusalem, Jericho is about here and right here in the Jordan River is where John the Baptist was baptizing. That's where Jesus was baptized. That's where he met. Uh, John the Baptist introduced some of his disciples to Jesus. They met and they hung out there. It says now, um, on the third day, that's the third day they were together, they went to Cana of Galilee. So they took a journey from here all the way up there. That's Cana of Galilee right there. Jesus is from the area of Nazareth. So it's very close to where Jesus was from. That's probably why he was invited to the wedding. He knew the people that lived in the town close by, but he goes on this journey. Now it looks like he just met five of these disciples and they just started to follow him. And then they go on this road trip together. It's not like our road trips, they're walking. And so they get to know each other on the way and they get to this wedding. So that kind of gives you an idea of where we're at. They go to this wedding. Um, Real quick, Let's look at, a, that's, that's the, the historical context. They go there. Now let's look at a little bit of the, the context in the passage. So this happened in probably about the year 28 AD. But when was this book written? Closer to 90 AD. Way later, John, the apostle John wrote it. John the apostle was probably one of these disciples here with him. He's writing it from a 60-year perspective, looking back and remembering some things. And it's helpful to look at how many things John includes in his book and things he doesn't include. And so literature wise, we're going to look at why he included this story. And there's some cool stuff that we'll learn in this story and some stuff we'll learn about Jesus. But we see there's kind of a main point within this passage. This is what you would call an inclusio if you're some weird English person and you care about that stuff. But it means it's bracketed um, by a story or a statement. And this is bracketed by in Cana of Galilee. You see that in verse one, you see that again in verse 11, meaning every t- everything between there is kind of making a point. And we wanna find out what that point is in that story, and then we're gonna learn from that. I'm just gonna give it to you right up front because here's the thing. As you read scripture, there's different genres, and you read different genres differently. And one mistake people make Um, and they've made it for centuries, is to read scripture and read it allegorically. Meaning every little piece means something hidden and it's only the really deep people that get it. You have to be very, very careful reading anything allegorically unless it's very clearly allegorical. But at the same time, why is this story in here? Is there some symbolism in here that John is trying to convey through what Jesus did? And there is some symbolism definitely with a wedding, Okay, uh, there's a picture here of the wedding at the end. 
between Jesus and his bride, the church, there's going to be a wedding feast. And it's going to be awesome, and the wine's not going to run out. Um, and Jesus is going to be the master. So there is some symbolism there, absolutely. Uh, as you read through, there's also some symbolism of the new covenant that's coming through Jesus versus the old law. There is some symbolism there, the, the stone jars of purification, meaning Jesus is bringing something new. But we have to be somewhat careful. If it's not clearly stated, we don't want to read into the text what we want to read into it. So I hope to put that out there that there is some symbolism, but we have to be careful, okay? We have to be careful with the symbolism, see what the main point is and what we can learn from it. And the main point of this story is that Jesus is the creator Messiah. And the only response to him, the only right response to him is belief. If you're a note taker, this is in your notes. Um, if you're visiting, uh, you can actually get the app, Common Ground Carson, and the notes are in there also. But the main point of this story is that Jesus is the creator Messiah, and the only right response to him is belief. Look at verse 11 with me right at the end. It says, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. He closes it off with that. Now, I want us to get the main point, and we need to understand this word signs, because how many signs are there in the book of John? There's seven signs. Seven signs in the book of John. And John uses the word signs in re reference to miracles, and it's a different word that is used in the synoptics. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In those gospels, whenever they talk about miracles, the word that's most often used is, is dunamis, which we get our word dynamite. It's a, a word for power, and so it shows his power. The word that Paul, or I'm sorry, that John uses is different. It's semion, sign, and it's a word that means a sign pointing to something. So if you're like me and you love Westerns, probably two of you in here maybe, or Louis L'Amour books. I love Louis L'Amour books. Um, and, and they're all the same. But, you know, somebody is tracking. Yeah, they're all the same, but they're all worth the read. Okay, there's one. Okay, so some of you know Louis L'Amour. Okay, so think Western though. And okay, think Indian tracker. <laughs> and an Indian tracker, tracking the cowboys, whatever. What are they looking for on the ground? They're looking for sign. Um, whether that's manure or, or, you know, hoof prints or whatever. They're looking for sign that's pointing in the direction. That's how John uses the word sign. Every sign is pointing to something. And the point throughout the entire gospel is every sign points to Jesus, to his identity as the creator Messiah and uh, what he's going to do. So everything points to Jesus and it points to our response being belief. Um, so that's what a sign is for. That's why this is in here. Again, this is in your notes. Every sign in John points to and validates the person and work of Jesus. So now we get the main point. Now you can totally tune out and we're going to go through it. <laughs> but don't tune out because this gets fun. Um, verse two, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So here's the picture. Jewish wedding. Jewish wedding is, is a week-long affair. It's a big party. It's not like we do weddings. It's, it's big and it keeps going. And the wine is provided by the, the bridegroom. So the groom is responsible for the wine. And for the wine to run out 
at a Jewish party like this is an insult to everybody invited. I mean, it's a big mistake. This is a huge embarrassment that the wine would run out. Is there symbolism here of wine of Israel running out? Probably, um, but we're not going to examine that. We don't have time, but you go do that. That's fun. Um, but so the, the wine runs out and Mary, Jesus's mother, apparently has something to do with the wedding. Maybe, you know, they live nearby. Maybe she's helping organize it. And she comes to Jesus and, and says, hey, they have no wine. You know, why does she come to Jesus and ask? I mean, it looks like she's asking him to do something about it. They have no wine. And his response is, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, our initial response is that looks disrespectful. Uh, but we need to understand the words, you know, in our house, uh, I call Callie woman. It's fairly endearing. Uh, and she calls me, man, I'll walk in the house, woman, man, I, it's what we do. And that's okay. <laughs> but when Brendan walks in the house, our son and goes, woman, it's kind of like, hmm. <laughs> um, and he does it playfully, but there's something a little bit different. You know, mothers, if your, your son calls you woman, um, this word isn't as disrespectful as we might think. It's more like the word ma'am. So it's not as disrespectful, but it's not also not as close as mother. Um, the, and Jesus is making a point here. He's creating some distance between him and his mother, Mary. Now, some, almost every commentator will talk about here, Mary coming to Jesus and saying they have no wine. Now, wine, we need to understand there is some symbolism with wine in the Old Testament. Old Testament, wine was pointing to when the Messiah would come and set up his rule, there would be sweet wine and it wouldn't run out. Jesus is just beginning his ministry. He's about 30 years old, close to that. And he's just beginning up until this time, he had been a good son. Uh, Joseph is probably dead. Mary's husband is probably dead. Last time we saw him was when Jesus was 12 years old. So who would take the place of the man of the house, the oldest son? That would be Jesus. So Jesus has been the man of the house probably for a while, serving his mother. But something has changed now. He went, he got baptized. He went out into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil and passed the test, by the way. Came back in and he begins his ministry. Something has changed. This just happened and now he's at this wedding. Do you think his mom probably knows he just got baptized and things are starting? She probably does. <laughs> she probably does. Jesus probably got there and said, yeah, I met John the Baptist and, and they were relatives, so she knows who he is and I just got baptized. So Mary knows things are beginning here. How much she knows, we don't know. So this request of they have no wine and his response, it seems weird, doesn't it? They have no wine. He's like, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come. It's like you guys are having two different conversations here. It could be she's saying they have no wine, meaning, hey, son, I know who you are. It's time. <laughs> it's time for you to step up as the Messiah and rule. And the Jews at that time, and we don't know if Mar how much Mary understood here, but the Jews were looking for a Messiah who was going to rule, overthrow Rome, set up the kingdom and rule. And so it could be that Mary was asking, hey, let's go. <laughs> get, get the wine going, get the blessing coming. It's time for you to do what you came to do. And it looks like there might be kind of that meaning in there because of Jesus's response he says, ma'am, creating some distance, what do we have in common is how that could li literally be, be translated. What do we have in common with each other? It's kind of weird. He creates some distance, meaning your plans are not my plans. What does that have to do with me? And then he says, my time has not yet come. All throughout John, his time, whenever he says that, or my hour, that's referring to his time on the cross. 
Because later when he's about to go to the cross, he says this. He says, my hour has come. My hour has come. That hour is when he is glorified. Meaning he dies on the cross, covers our sins, is risen from the dead. And then after that, he's, he's ascended and, and fully glorified. That's his time. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Not yet. Um, so if you picture this, Mary probably gives a little wink at Jesus. Hey, they ran out of wine. <laughs> Here's your chance. <laughs> and he says, ma'am, it's not time yet. Not time yet. Uh, this is in your, in your notes. Um, Mary reproaches Jesus as his mother. This is D.A. Carson, a quote from D.A. Carson. Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. And then she responds as a believer and her, her faith is honored. So look at how, what Mary then does. Mary brings that to him and he says, my time has not yet come, but she doesn't completely give up. She then turns to the, the servants there and says, do whatever he says. Oddly enough, Jesus then engages. Jesus does something. So the servants come to, come to Jesus. And I, I picture him, he's with his disciples and others reclining at the table and the servants come over and he whispers at him, see those, those stone jars over there? He says, fill those up with water. And they were stone jars for purification. It means they probably already had water in them. People were doing their washing as they came in. So they probably had to dump out these jars and then fill them back up. So he whispers to them, go fill up those jars. The servants do it. Um, then they come to him, kind of, I picture him kind of whispering, hey, we, we filled him up. And Jesus looks, he's like, okay, take some to the head waiter. That's what it says. Take the water to the head waiter. Where, where are we? Um, in verse six, so in water jars, uh, verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And what did they draw out? Looks like they drew out water. When did the water become wine? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know, but imagine being a servant in this situation. You know, Mary told us to do whatever he says, and we're filling this up, and this is really confusing. Now take some to the head waiter. Okay, you know, I picture them carrying this, so there's some faith maybe on the, or just obedience on the part of the servant, bringing this cup, and they give it to the head waiter. And I picture it somewhere in that transition, in that handoff. The head waiter then takes a sip of it and goes, whoa, where'd you get this? And I picture, you know, the servant, they're probably like, what? <laughs> what just happened? And, and he says, you, you saved the good wine till now. He goes to the bridegroom. Typically, they gave the best wine first when your, your taste buds are fully gone. And after you had had a little bit, then they bring the, the worst wine because nobody notices. Here, he brought the good wine last. And so Jesus makes good wine. He makes great wine. Um, side note here. Some argue that in scripture, the drinking of wine is just grape juice. No. Or that it's, it's, it's diluted so much that, that there's no alcohol left. Clearly, that's not the case. Otherwise, they wouldn't bring the best wine out first and the second wine. They've had a little bit. Um, meaning, you can't manipulate scripture to say don't drink. But scripture is very clear, don't be drunk. Kind of a side note that I think is worth noting. But in the end, Jesus is going to make great wine, and that's going to be fun. Um, <laughs> So here's, here's this picture though, six jars at 25 gallons, 25 to 30 gallons each. This could be as much as 180 gallons of wine. He makes a lot of wine and he probably didn't even get out of his seat. <laughs> He's sitting there and they're doing all the work. He makes this wine. Uh, 
here's in your notes, because I think this is a valuable point. Only God can create. Jesus, show, Jesus shows his identity by an act of creation only God could do. Jesus didn't take grape juice and make it wine. Jesus took water and made it wine. In what science lab can that happen? None. That can't happen. That's creation. Only God can create. So we looked at Jesus in the prologue being the word that came from beginning, the word that created. And the point is that Jesus existed from all beginning and was never created. Now, Jesus proves it by creating something. There's value in that. Proving his identity is pointing to Jesus as God among them. He created pretty cool stuff. Only God can create. Now, look at verse 11 with me. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. How many miracles did Jesus do as a kid? None. This is the first time. You know, I know there's stories written in some, hey, remember the gospel of Thomas and all these other gospels and whatever. They're not true, and I'll tell you why. Some of those have these stories of like Jesus. Um, I think a, a kid, one of the stories is that one of his friends, they were out playing, and Mary looks out, and the kid falls and dies. And Jesus goes and brings them back to life, and they keep playing. Um, another one is Jesus making birds out of clay and then letting them go, and they would fly away. Um, none of that happened. Because this verse very clearly states this is the first of his miracles, the first of his signs. He looked, to a certain extent, other than being the perfect son, he looked like everybody else. Up until this point, he, may, he does this miracle um, of actual creation. Beautiful picture. And how many people knew what he did? Look at the, look at the verses here. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was a sign, but it was done in secret. Mary knew, the servants knew, and the disciples knew. Everybody else there just thought they got really good wine. So I think it's an interesting story that's put in here. And there is some deeper purpose, but I think the main purpose is Jesus, the creator God, can create. And he proves it here. And there's pointing to something new coming. What is it that we see in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that Jesus creates? Anybody know 2 Corinthians 5.17? We are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Jesus can create wine out of water. Jesus can give us new life. And that's what he came to do. John writes this so that we believe and have life. Only Jesus can give that new life. Only Jesus can create new life. And we're going to look at this more as we go through the book, but it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of who Jesus is. So there's the main point. Okay. There's the main point. Jesus, Jesus can create. And I want us to get that because if Jesus can create, what can't he do? What problem do you have that Jesus can't handle? Jesus cares about wine running out at a feast. Who cares? But Jesus cared. What's going on in your life? Jesus cares. Do you bring it to him? Do you know he can handle it? And I think that's the other thing that we can get from this is look at Mary. And I think this is valuable. This is a valuable, a lot of times, you know, you read through scripture and you find the main point. We saw the main point. It's pointing to Jesus. 
and our response is belief, which is faith. But there's other principles that you see that are fair to pull out of scripture. And I think there's a principle here we see in Mary. How does she come to Jesus? At first as his mother, but then he goes, hey, by the way, mom, things have changed. Now I report to dad, (laughs) heavenly father, and I'm doing his will. Our relationship is changing now. And Mary goes, okay. But still then she comes in faith. Mary is like any of us. Mary is pretty amazing. As you look in scripture, she was an amazing, amazing woman, but she wasn't perfect. She wasn't sinless like some would try and teach, but she then came to Jesus with faith and she just gave him the issue, gave him the problem. They have no wine. Says, do what they say. She didn't tell him what to do. She let him handle it. And what he did was the best. I think that's valuable. It was a lot and it was the best. If Mary would have been the one in charge, maybe she would have said, hey, could you just make a couple gallons of wine or whatever it is? But instead she let him do it and he made 180 gallons of the best wine. And here's the principle I want us to get. What's going on in your life? Have you brought it to Jesus? And then have you stopped micromanaging him and let him handle it his way? Because he knows better than you. If it's between God's way and my way, I'm gonna go with God's way. And I've caught myself. I've caught myself praying about a situation and then I look back and I go, man, I'm telling God what to do. (laughs) And you know, God is just sitting there going, oh, Open up your eyes. I want to give you so much more than you think you want. I want to give you the best and let me do it my way. Are we doing that? That's our application today. What is on your plate? What is in your life that you need to give to God? And you need to let Jesus handle it and know that he loves you and know that he can create and he'll do it his way and then walk out in faith, trusting him. What is it going on? Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Callie and I, years ago, um, we had a dream of building a house. We wanted to build a house. And so we found a piece of property uh, over, you know, in Douglas on that side of town. Great place. We had plans drawn up. Uh, It cost thousands of dollars to get these plans drawn specific for this lot. And we were very excited. The day came for us to go sign the papers. So we were approved for the loan. Everything was ready to go. And we had to go sign the loan papers and sign the, whatever it is, uh, everything. We had to sign it and be, be ready to go. The day came for us to do it and we wanted to, but Callie and I prayed and we, we both went, we're not comfortable. We, we want, the place where we were at wasn't working for us, for the business, for the family. We needed something else. And so we had a plan for, for what we were gonna do. And we told God our plan and we moved forward with our plan. And when the day came, God said, that's not my plan. And we wanted to do it, but we just weren't, there was just this lack of peace. You know, that's all I can say. We both had this lack of peace. And one of us said, I'm not comfortable with this. Are you? No, I'm not. Why not? I don't know. And so we called him up and said, we're not going to sign. And of course, you know, that's a bummer for everybody else involved, but we didn't go through with it. You know, it was within a couple months that the house we're now in came on the market and we were able to move in there and get that. And everything was better than what we would have had. Everything was better. And the reason was God wanted us to, and he's proven it to us over and over. He wanted to give us that house to use for ministry, to use for people. It's a great place. Hopefully most of you have been there. If you haven't come over this summer, but it's a place where we can serve others, where we can bring others in. And God had a plan. And when we went his way, we got something better. We got something better for his kingdom, for his glory. That's the way he works. 
And we don't always understand it. That one was clear. We don't always understand it that clearly. But what is it that you need to give to God and let him handle his way and just trust him with it? Pat, you're going to have a lot of times this summer to do just that <laughs> with all these staff and all these kids of just, trust God, what do you want to do? I'm going to trust you with it. Let me pray. We're going to worship. Father in heaven, um, I thank you that you're trustworthy. God, it's kind of, it's one of those funny things as I look at my own life and I look at all the mistakes I've made and, and how, well, just plain dumb I can be. I thank you that you know how dumb I can be. Um, and I thank you that you are perfect and I can take it to you and I can leave it with you and trust you because you know what's best when I don't. God, I pray that you would stir in each of us that faith, that trust for you trust of you, that you love us, you know what's best, and we can leave it with you and not keep picking it up, not keep living in anxiety and stress, or, or it, it's only God if it happens this way, but let us just trust you. Jesus Christ, you have given us everything, and we know that there's nothing you will withhold if it's for our good. Be glorified now as we respond in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.